Coffee with Humans is live, candid conversations between strangers who become friends. Made possible with your support. Subscribe, share, and comment on your favorite platform. Get Coffee with Humans mugs and more. Links are at coffeewithhumans.com. Thanks for joining me. Well, we are back live again with Coffee with Humans with my new friend, Noel Bagwell. Noel, welcome to Coffee with Humans. Hey, thanks for having me on. So we got connected months ago, I know, and we had yeah. a brief conversation. I, I remember driving in the car uh, and we, we were talking about sales and all sorts of stuff at the time. Uh, so I'm excited to get the chance to reconnect with you. And I know it's been a long, it's been a long wait as it tends to be uh, to get, to get onto this, uh, this particular show. So I, thanks for sticking around uh, to, to come on here with me. I'm excited to get to know you more. Well, yeah, uh, everything worth doing is hard and it's hard for me to be patient for anything. I just don't have that personality. I'm not a patient person, but uh, I guess that just means that the wait, the wait will have been worth it. We'll see. <laughs> That's true. We will see. Uh, we'll see. Well, well, <laughs> if it's worth doing, I should make this harder then, shouldn't I? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think you make it uh, plenty difficult. I mean, you you have this uh, very welcoming sort of, I, I hate to use sales like lingo, but it's like top of funnel, top of funnel approach. Like your logo is very welcoming. Coffee with humans, I think is a really welcoming brand, but in the scheduling process, it's, you do a good job weeding out people who are kind of like looky lose or just there to you know be a shill for some product or whatever and honestly i respect the heck out of that but i think i think you're right on the money with what you're doing and don't change a thing man okay <laughs> all right well i appreciate that <laughs> so i'm yeah. I'm curious if you could think back in, into memory banks why did you choose to click the button to have coffee with me um there was something on your audrey profile which we connected through audrey because i have a podcast you have a podcast and yep. uh with audrey you put in your profile something about sacred conversations. And oh, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, sacred conversations. That sounds <laughs> either really deep or really pretentious. Which which one is it? And I was super, I was super um, curious about that. So I liked yeah. that. I also liked the fact that you said the one rule is no sales calls. Um, I'm a big fan of that because there's nothing I hate more than a hard sell or like a high intensity sales like pitch. I, I don't want to be in those and I don't want to bring it on either side, right? Like I don't want to bring someone in, into that with me and I don't want to participate that in that with anybody else. So I liked that. Um, and then just the idea of, of having no agenda um, and really impliedly no identity politics and no demographics because it's coffee with humans. You don't really care, you know, what age, race, sexual orientation, political affiliation, et cetera, you are, what profession you are, none of that. It's just, we're all humans. And you just want to connect with other humans as humans. And that is a super beautiful, attractive thing for me. So that, I guess that's what, all of those things together is what drew me in. All right. Well, I, my plan is working perfectly. So don't change that's good. That's good feedback. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, it is, it's supposed to not be pretentious. It's supposed to be uh, deep. I mean, because I I chose I chose the wording pretty carefully, but it, it also just kind of rolled off at the time. It just kind of rolled rolled out of me, like spilled out. I was like, hey, you know, coffee is a great connecting uh, event or activity. You know, coffee is more than just the bean and the you know and the drink. It's it's the uh, it's the opportunity to sit down and connect with somebody. And then, like you say, humans. Yeah. 
It's like we are all you are okay. weeding out. Regardless of what we do, we're just humans. We're just people. Yeah, th there's one group that you are weeding out, though. It's the Mormons, right? I mean, I guess I could drink decaf. I had somebody ask me at one point in time, can I still come on if I have, I don't drink coffee. It, like the person was totally serious. I don't drink coffee. Can I still come on the show? And I was like, well, absolutely. I, you know, I drink tea sometimes. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I have water right now. Cause it's like, it's noon. If I have coffee right now, I'll, I'll be doing this show at two or 3 AM. Like I gotta, <laughs> I can't have, can't have coffee all day. <laughs> yes. I am entering that phase of life and I, I can relate. <laughs> so you do have you you do have a, a podcast that I know a little bit about um, because you're a lawyer. Yeah, I know that much. And I a lot of times, you know, for our viewers and listeners, I, a lot of times I don't know any I know nothing about guests before they come on. We meet about eight minutes before we go live and we talk about nothing. We do some tech checks and then we just you're basically, you know, we're invited to this, you know, the, this private conversation with a global audience. And I know some uh, something about you. You're a lawyer. You want to change law for small businesses and or the methodology or something around that. You can explain it. Uh, and you do have a podcast. So what's what's that about? What's your podcast about? The podcast is uh, an outgrowth or a content marketing channel, honestly, for our primary offering, our core offering, which is called Profit from Legal. That's why the name of the podcast is the Profit from Legal podcast. Um, we kind of feel like things should just do what they say on the tin. And really that's what the service is, is it's a, a legal operations function install. So in to unpack that for people who aren't, aren't familiar and haven't worked in like big corporate legal departments, um, there's a legal operations function within the legal department of a, of a law firm or a big company. And uh, it sort of helps the executive team and the management team know when and how to to employ the services of the legal department or their outside general counsel, how to align legal services with the enterprise goals of the business. And so they they make your legal support more effective, more efficient. Um, it, historically, it's been a source of like cost savings and that. Um, but what we want to do is something pretty unique because we only see, we or I shouldn't say only, but we primarily see um, legal operations functions in bigger businesses. And I kind of feel bad for the little guys, you know, the smaller businesses, they're missing out on all those great benefits that I just mentioned, being able to have profitable, preventive, ongoing legal support. And really what makes that magic happen is either a phenomenal general counsel attorney who really has your bottom line in mind, or more commonly, a uh, legal operations function in your business that, you know, basically creates uh, systems and processes integrations for your legal support and make sure that your legal support is pre preventive and profitable. So we, we create the conditions necessary for our clients to have a profitable ongoing relationship with preventive legal support rather than just waiting until they get sued and then having to dig themselves out of a very expensive hole they never should have fallen in in the first place. Sure. Why did you choose to become a lawyer? Oh man, I, I've said this on, people ask me that I've said this on a number of podcasts and no matter how many times I say it, I can't find a less arrogant way to say this, but for me, law was a fallback position. I know for a lot of people, it's their passion, it's their life's ambition and it's a big deal. It's very hard. Oh, you know, I got through law school. I made it, you know, 
And for me, I just always knew that that was an option. I always knew I had the skill set to do it, but I didn't want to do it. Um, I actually started college with a double major in business administration and computer science. I wanted to get into tech and business and that sort of thing. I've always had more of a, an entrepreneurial streak. And frankly, I see myself as an entrepreneur, almost more than a lawyer. Law is just sort of my medium. I see entrepreneurship like art. You can be an artist and be a musician or a sculptor or a painter or whatever, right? Those are just the, the media. Which medium are you going to choose? And I think that entrepreneurship is the same way, where whether you're in tech or medicine or law or engineering or podcasting, the media, whatever, uh, you can be an entrepreneur and do just about anything. For me, I'm an entrepreneur and law is my medium. Law for business is my medium specifically. And so I got about halfway through college and had kind of an existential crisis. Um, mm. My life was just it like in shambles, honestly, it was just was not in a good place. And I was looking for a reason to keep going. And so I started looking into life's deeper questions and ended up with a degree in philosophy. And actually, upon graduating from college, I, I didn't go to law school. I went to the seminary and studied at a Baptist seminary for about a year. And uh, about a year in, I said, this is not about building people. This is not about building better people. This isn't, it didn't seem to be what it was advertised to be. You know, like uh, deep spirituality, relationships with God, connecting with other people in better ways. It didn't seem to be about any of that. It seemed to be about building buildings and uh, missions programs and denominations and a bigger organizational structure. And uh, to me, that just wasn't appealing um, at that point in my life. Even though I've, I've had a passion for entrepreneurship, I don't think that's what religion's supposed to be. So I left and worked in luxury property management a couple of years near, near Raleigh, North Carolina, and then finally said, you know what, if you're going to ever be happy in your life, you need to do the thing that you're best at for the benefit of other people. And so I asked myself, what am I best at? Where does that Venn diagram happen for me? When, you know, things that I'm best at and things that benefit others, where, where can I get the most bang for my buck there? I was just like, well, you've been running from law school your whole life. Why don't you, you know, do that? Because you know that's where your skills are. And so in that conversation, internal conversation with myself and also a conversation with my wife, um, that was a decision that I made. So went to law school in 2009, graduated early in 2011. I had took all of the, I took all of the business law classes, like all the hard stuff that kills your GPA, like securities regulation and uniform commercial code and federal tax for business and corporate finance and all that stuff. Um, I booked economic analysis of law. So I got top grade in that class. And that really was my passion because I had a mentor there who had a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. So I really kind of renewed my passion for entre entrepreneurship in, uh, in business generally in law school and uh, came out of that thinking, okay, great. Now I can, now I can help people. I can, I have, I have tools and you know a, a license and I just hung my shingle out and was promptly very miserable for about four to six months. I, I hated it. Um, and so I sort of got more focused and more niche after that. I realized there were a lot of people coming into my office with easily preventable legal problems. And so I started asking myself and that more questions like, you know, cause that's always been the thing that's gotten me centered back towards towards good and and being sort of out of my own head and out of out of a self-centered mindset and more of an others focused mindset is asking kind of deep questions and 
question that I asked before I started my law firm that I have now is if I were an entrepreneur, like a startup or a small business owner, what would I want my relationship with my lawyer to look like? And hmm. I knew that they needed to have ongoing an ongoing relationship to, to be talking to their lawyer at least a couple times a month. And if you could do that, if you could have that kind of relationship, that connection with a lawyer as a business owner, the lawyer would be able to do actual like forecasting for you, legal risk forecasting, and would be able to keep you from having easily preventable problems. But if you wait until there's a, a big problem or crisis, the damage is already done often, and it's more expensive to repair it. And so um, started answering those questions, and, and that was what I built my practice around, all the answers to those questions about how, how would I, if I were in that position, if I were the client, how would I want my relationship with my lawyer to look? And so we've kind of built this golden rule, practice do under others as you'd have them do under you, you know, the golden rule legal practice of, of executive LP. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a um, distinction or um, something I, uh, sort of see in you this diff the this philosophical side this deeply like let's ask the deep questions side which sometimes runs uh, I've known a lot of lawyers and I don't mean to broad brush everybody but lawyers tend to not to not get super philosophical because it's 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 sort of just practical matters like we got to do this stuff and here's how we have to do it and let's get to the done and then and you seem to have this uh um I mean like when you when when I ask you what, what are we going to title this chat you said uh, a thoughtful retrospective, and 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 the, even even this idea that you you said sacred, you know, you were drawn to this idea of sacred conversations as something bigger in scope for human beings. I mean, that's a that's a um, a depth or breadth of thought that's almost uh, at it's almost um, well, it's philosophical but academic. It's it's like a teaching sort of methodology rather than a you know, let's review the paperwork and check the boxes and get that's it done. Happiest is, that's what I'm happiest is when I'm teaching other people. I, I love that. No, nothing more in my life do I love than that. And um, I've never really been good at playing the games that other people play, mm -hmm. the social games. Like small talk is really hard for me. Uh, I, I hate talking about sports because I, I've never really been able to understand why... I would be invested in the success of people that I've never met playing a sport that I, I mean, I played basketball in high school, played baseball in high school and growing up, you know, you people play like little league, right. And stuff like that. So I played baseball, but if the, if the Cubs win the world series, that has nothing to do with me. Why would, why would I want to talk to anybody about that? Like, why would I, why do I care? And I, I think for some people, it's that they built up these experiences with their their father, their uncle, their grandfather, their mother, whoever, right? They, they grew up watching baseball as a family. And so for them, yeah. it kind of ties into this sort of nostalgic tradition. I didn't have that. Um, I didn't have a lot of that. I mean, we watched the World Series in, in our house, but that was like the only baseball that we, and it was whoever watched. We didn't like follow it. I mean, whoever was playing, it didn't matter who was playing. We watched it because it was the World Series or the Super Bowl, right? We didn't like yeah. follow the teams all the way along. And so for me, sports, I've just sort of been like, well, that's that's their victory and good for them. I'm happy for them, but it it doesn't impact my life at all. And so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time really thinking or talking about it. And everything is like that for me, small talk. 
I mean, it's, um, it's just, it seems so tiresome because it's just tedious. And I wake up every day thinking, okay, uh, there's a passage of scripture that says, uh, a man is given 70 years and he dies basically like three score and 10 years is the span of man or something like that. I can't remember the exact quote. It doesn't matter. But the point is you're, you're only given a finite amount of time and then you're going to die. And you should wake up every day thinking, well, that's one less day. You know, you have one day less remaining in your life. What are you doing with the balance of your time? And uh, there's this great poem. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from it is, time is the fire in which we burn. And that's totally, totally true. And I, that might seem really depressing for a lot of people thinking about the day of their death or thinking about the fact that time is a fire that is literally consuming our existence. But when you put it in that perspective, there, it, it will cultivate a sense of urgency within you to use your time well and to do your best for other people. Because there, there is like Percy Bysshe Shelley wrote Ozymandias. That poem's all about how legacy is an illusion. The greatest king of kings, no matter what he builds, he can say, look on my works, you mighty and despair, right? But all that's left is like the stump of a monument covered in sand with one little plaque on it, you know, and that's it. That's all that remained of his empire. And when you read that poem as well, you sort of get this impression of, okay, well, all, all of humanity and all of our accomplishments, and all of our legacy and everything that we are and everything that we have and everything that we build will eventually be covered over by the saints of time. There is nothing that can escape that, that can escape time. The universe will die in silence and darkness. And the only thing that makes anything meaningful in that paradigm is our connections in the moment with other people. So make the most of those. Don't, don't talk about sports. <laughs> you know, it's just like, why would you talk about the local sports team when you when you don't know what kind of burden that person might be bearing or what they're trying to distract themselves from you could be talking about that you should you could be there for them you could be loving on them you could be contributing in some way that eases their suffering because we all have that and so i think that's what we sports is a sport sports is a pretty hot topic for you Well, it's just a kind of caught example. It's just like an example, you know. It's like, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of you could you could put video games in there or comic books or Disney movies or you know you can put whatever frivolous distraction you want in there. And by the way, I love all of those things. I love to play baseball. Um, I love to play video games. I love sitting and watching movies with my son and or my friends. And you know, all of those distractions are part and parcel of life, but all things in moderation as well. It's good to do those things. But like if I'm meeting a stranger for the first time, very rarely does the conversation involve any kind of small talk. (laughs) And it's usually only after I determine that they're not capable of talking about something meaningful. Hmm. So plane or something, if you're just there with with so-and-so, you know, so what is the sense of urgency? Sorry, you're talking about this idea of sense of urgency because yeah, sense of urgency. Uh, life is life is life is short. Basically, your days your days are numbered. Uh, mm-hmm. So, what does that sense of urgency create in you? You mean what? If, like, what effects has it wrought in my life? Like, what what's been? Yeah, how's that? How's that sense of urgency feel in your gut? Um, 
it feels like general anxiety disorder. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do. I, li- I live with that. I live with, uh, I live with, um, some, some significant psychological problems, um, anxiety disorder being, being among them. I have struggled with depression, obviously. I mean, I mentioned in college sort of having an existential crisis. And I think that's, that's part of that. And I, I don't think that you should have a stigma about mental health issues any more than you should have a stigma about physical health issues. I mean, we all get the flu from time to time. Um, you know, some people live with, you know, they're in a terrible car accident. They lose their legs. They're amputees, right? Does society like condemn them and treat them like a pariah? No, we have compassion for them. We, we give them handicapped parking spaces in front of the store so that they don't have to go as far. I mean, we, we treat them with compassion and with consideration because that's what you should do for people who have been through trauma and are suffering and, and have a harder time in life. But because mental health issues are invisible and we can't see the cause of that, our brains tell us, ah, oh, that's made up or they're faking or it's not that serious. You know, they, why can't they just, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps? And I find all of that incredibly obnoxious. And so I'm, I'm pretty open about, um, the anxiety that I have and, you know, the history that I've had with depression and things like that. I'm, I'm pretty open with that and not to like go around and say, Oh, woe is me. You need to give me special consideration, but more or less just to say, look, it's no big deal. We all have this from time to time. Everybody, most people in their lives will go through a period where they're depressed um, or they'll experience a time of higher anxiety or high, high stress that can have those similar symptoms. And when you think back over your life, you think, well, I've been there. I've been through similar things. And you should you should have compassion for others. But for me, I think a lot of my anxiety does come from my worldview. A lot of it does come from the fact that I know the clock is ticking. And I feel that, like, viscerally. I feel it in my in my, the marrow of my bones. I feel the sands of time. And which makes me really great as a lawyer, right? Because we bill in six-minute increments. Um, I don't, I hate the billable hour, but, but lawyers, lawyers need to have a pretty, uh, keen sense of time because it really affects their, their income. Usually, um, actually wrote an article called, we hate the billable hour and you should too, back in 2015 or something and put it on the blog on my website. And, uh, I stand by that. I, I still hate the billable hour, but I, it doesn't mean that I don't really have a sense of, of time and urgency that compels me to get the most out of each day. And that's really hard because, uh, ironically, a lot of the, the anxiety and depression is it can be crippling. Like I go through phases where it's crippling and my productivity suffers because I, I struggle to find motivation. But ultimately, so, the very thing that creates the anxiety gets me back to productive again. It's a cycle. Sure. Interesting. So what would happen just out of curiosity? So if if if, if the finite nature of time or life creates anxiety and the pressure to do more or to make mm-hmm. the most of it. Um, and it becomes a moment by moment prioritization issue of, is this moment the best use of my moments? Then what would happen? What happens when you don't make the best use of your moments? Cause that's a judgment. Mean, it's a judgment call of what the best use of the moment is. And quite honestly, I don't know that, that we would know what the best use of the moment is. I would think that a lot of, lot of moments that seem useless in life uh, uh, or, or things that were unplanned, let's say, turned out to be of greatest benefit. So sure. we're probably bad planners at trying to, or 
bad bad estimators sometimes of what is going to achieve the highest ROI for ourselves. So what what happens in you when you're when you're not achieving? Well, thankfully the way our brains are designed or the way they've evolved, however you want to think about that, the structure of our brains <laughs> prevents a lot of that moment by moment analysis from happening for for the vast majority of people and usually for me. Um the system one in your brain that Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel laureate, describes in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, really is, is not capable of the kind of deliberative evaluation of priorities that you're describing. That's the purview of system two, the, the slow analytical thinking part of your brain. The faster intuitive sort of emotional part of your brain uh, makes snap judgments based on heuristics. And so most of the time we're using system one in our brain, it's only when we pause and we reflect and we are intentional. And that comes out of like habits or a failure of system one um, that causes us to deliberate about uh, priorities. So for me, I, I do tend to habitually take time during the day to, to focus on priorities. And I think highly productive people have a habit of doing that as well. Uh, either the, the night before they plan out their whole next day or in the morning first thing as they're having breakfast or whatever they review their calendar and prioritize their day and they utilize time blocking and stuff like that in order to remain productive but the anxiety of i'm falling behind in my work i think we all have felt that like when you have a due date um, for a project or you have a deadline or something for for work that you have to turn in i think we all as we get closer and closer to that deadline have this impression of I'm not done yet. Am I going to get it done in time? And that can be really stressful. And sometimes the stress of that can be debil debilitating. And sometimes it can be actually counterproductive. But I think for most people who who aren't stuck in procrastination mode and they're not just constantly trying to prioritize or reprioritize things, find a way through it. Um, a combination of deliberation, intuition, just the structure of your, your mind and your brain gets you through that. A, so a more like procedural and mechanical explanation would both be boring and time consuming. So I'll forego that. <laughs> That's the summary. So it, so it sounds to me like you, you spent a lot of time living, living in your head. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I'm not really sure that I'm not really sure that anybody doesn't live, live in their head. I think that they think that they don't live in their head, but they do. They really do. They're just not aware of it. I think I think a lot of us. I mean, all of your perceptions are unique to you, all of them. I mean, even the ones that you kind of share. But like two people watching the same movie in the same theater at the same time are going to come away thinking different thoughts because of all of their past experiences and the, the lens through which they perceive the film. It's the same film. They they saw the same pictures. They heard the same sounds. It was the same. They were in the same place. It was the same temperature. Same people throwing popcorn at the back of their head or whatever right? Everybody got, everyone got the same thing, but you came away with different impressions. And sure. I think like all of life is that way. And, um, it's one of the things that makes marriage so hard, for example, um, because of your upbringing being different from your spouses and the way you see the world being different, you come away with different existential values from those shared moments together. And you'll either grow together or you'll grow apart. And I think what makes the difference is communication, like communicating how you see see things and being open to hearing other people's communication about the way they see things and 
realizing that you don't have to agree with them in order to accept the validity of who they are and how they see the world. Um, so I, I think we all do live in our heads. I maybe more than most, maybe more intentionally than most, but definitely we all live in our heads. So using the movie example, it'd be fair. I don't, maybe it's not fair to suggest this, but it would seem that some people go to movies and just would enjoy it. Like I'm just enjoying this and there's no, there's given no thought perhaps into a, a deeper level of why is this enjoyable? What are the parameters that make it enjoyable? What wouldn't be enjoyable about this? How can I make it better? You, it, it's, so when I, when I kind of term like I living in the head, right? There's this idea of just living and just riding the wave of the, of the time versus picking apart the, picking apart the aspects of it as some in uh for some purpose yeah there is actually a quote by sir francis bacon that i mean obviously he didn't have movies back in the what 1600s or whenever he lived but he said some books should be tasted some devoured but only a few should be chewed and digested thoroughly obviously he's not literally talking about eating books but he is metaphorically talking about our approach to different media. And I would say some, some movies, like if you're, um, if you're not trying to chew and digest a movie, like uh, Cecil B. DeMille's 10 commandments or the 10 commandments of Charlton Heston or another Charlton Heston movie of Ben-Hur um, or a movie like Spartacus. If you're not really trying to watch these like epic films uh, to a lesser degree, a modern parallel might be 300, although that's very laughable. Um, if you're not trying to draw some deeper meaning out of, out of these movies, I mean, they can be merely entertaining, but it, you're sort of missing the point. And Mortimer Adler wrote in his wonderful book, um, how to read a book. He, he talked about how to read books to listen to the, the meaning and the message behind them and, you know, like how to really think about them and process them and, and how to do that. You're not just getting the meaning from written words on a page, letting it wash over you and then having an emotional reaction to it. It's, it's about being intentional and thoughtful. And I think movies are the same way, you know, um, you should approach them thinking, okay, if this is the best use of this two or three hours of my life, and I've decided to say, okay, yeah, this is, this is a good use of my time because I need to relax or I need to decompress or, I want something to sort of shake me out of my worldview a little bit and give me a new perspective or whatever reason that you're approaching that movie. Um, you know, think about it with that intention of, of where does it fit in the priority scheme of your life and why, and then really be thoughtful about how you get, out, get the most out of it. Unless you're there purely for escapist fantasy catharsis, you know, like if you're going to go and watch a uh, new Avengers movie or something, or the God, bless you the new star wars movies if you're going to watch any of those i mean i think there with the new star wars movies the, the challenge is to enjoy it like if you can if you can just have fun with it if you if it can be fun for you to watch those i think that's the challenge mm -hmm. um i think that's what kathleen kennedy and, and her career over at disney have done is they've made enjoying star wars are, are the biggest challenge of our time um <laughs> This is a little cynicism for me. I'm a fan of the old trilogy, uh, clearly, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you, cle so you clearly things. have your you clearly have your likes. You clearly have your dislikes, and yeah, uh, and and a process of reasoning behind it. 
behind the judge this judgment to figure out which 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 bucket it fits in (laughs) but yeah i think you you should you should live your life purposefully and intentionally and that even extends to um that even extends to entertainment so like movies i think how do you know so out of of curiosity so i've just so um how do you know when someone's not living purposefully or intentionally oh man people are gonna think how do you know when you're not living purposefully how do you know when you're not living purposefully or intentionally because you don't actually you can't actually speak for anybody else so how do you know for yourself and i'm gonna i'm gonna think about i'm gonna think about it as well Uh, i know i put you on the spot with that question but if we're going to go to one side and say we have to do we have to do something we have to we have to live purposefully and intentionally what's the How opposite because i think sometimes we recognize what we're doing by when we're not doing it so i'm just i'm i'm going back into my memory banks and thinking when was i not living purposefully yeah. or intentionally well, I think it's like how you know someone's being a good person or a bad person. And there are good people and bad people. There, you know, it's not we're not living in just moral relativism soup. That's not that's not consistent with human experience, no matter what the academics in their ivory towers may say. Um, and you know someone's a good person because they do good things, and you know they're a bad person because they do bad things. And you might argue over the minutia of, of what those things are, why, but we all sort of know that there's a baseline standard. Like if you murder people, you're a bad person. Um, there's some things that we can agree on, right? And so you know people by their by the fruits of their labors, by the fruits of their time and their effort and their all the things that they do. And so too, okay. with intentional living, like you can tell that the fruit of an intentional life is a well-disciplined mind a well-disciplined person, someone who is thoughtful, someone who is um, using system two marginally more in their brain, system two being, again, the logical, analytical, thoughtful part of their brain. You can tell that they've taken time to cultivate that because left to our own devices um, and absent some extreme external pressure, most, most people will operate almost exclusively in the emotional, intuitive, like go with your gut realm. Uh, And certainly our culture pushes us towards that in the United States and in the West more, more broadly, we're pushed culturally to use less of our analytical reasoning brain. Our school system does not produce graduates who are good at, at being critical thinkers. It doesn't. And there are some people who are good critical thinkers who go through the school system, but by and large, most of the people who go through it are not trained to do that. They're, they don't get any economics training in in high school generally they don't get philosophy they don't get the things the tools that they need to be good analytical thinkers and so they're not usually purposeful and intentional and in fact we have these sort of cultural aphorisms like go with your gut or if it feels good do it i mean we have these people who say these things without a shred of irony and they're basically telling you don't think about it don't think just do it nike just do it right just do the thing and you won't know until you try um sometimes you will i mean you can learn from history and you can learn from other people's mistakes uh there's a lot that you can learn without having to make the mistakes yourself firsthand so i think i do put a a good a lot of importance on on critical thinking and analysis and and learning from others um maybe i'm just that risk averse. i don't know but i'll have to say that i think the evidence of an intentional life um is in in the deliberative character of the individual and the more you see someone who has developed the ability to do good quality critical thinking work and who intentionally does it on their own initiative 
Um, I'd say that they're they're living a more intentional, purposeful life, and they tend to have their priorities straight more than someone who's just sort of flying by the seat of their pants. Hmm. So, what about a person who, uh, let's say, gets a gets a van, decorates the van, leaves their, you know, quote unquote, stable corporate job or stable job, uh, and says, "I'm just going to head out. I'm going to camp in my van." Uh, visit the places I want to visit, make money when I want to make money. Is that deliberate, intentional, purposeful, wandering? Where's that land in your purview? I think it's all of those things. I think it is deliberate. I think it's purposeful. I think it's intentional. I think it's wandering. Now, what's vague is what their purpose is, but we can, because of stereotypes, we can kind of um, guess what those purposes might be to get out of modern mainstream culture a little bit maybe they feel super saturated by that maybe they feel like they're drowning in thousands of ads per day and they can't deal with it anymore and they they don't feel like any of that has any existential value and so they're trying to reconnect to uh um the world kind of go on an inner journey by taking an outer journey through the phys physical world and interacting with other people and leaving behind uh, attachment to chasing after material possessions and things like that. And so they've, they've left a lot of that. They have what they need in order to live. They've chosen what is essential. That person that you're describing has chosen things that are essential for them. And they don't want more than that. They want to just have what's essential. I respect the hell out of that. I think the people who do that um, and maintain a reasonable standard of, of quality of life um, and they do it for, for good, clear reasons. And it's always a choice. It's voluntary. They could always go back to their life. You know, they're not running from something. They're running towards something. And um, those people, I, I respect that. I know a few of those people who did pack it all up and, and uh, do things. And then they went on to other phases of life after that, that. They went through a phase where that was they just chose what was essential. And there have been a few people who've written books about their experiences doing things like that and have talked about the trans transformative nature of those kinds of activities. And I think that's really impressive if you're able to pull it off. Well, in some ways it would seem that that kind of, that kind of life of, uh, of living in the more in the moment, let's say, rather than thinking about how the clock is running down, um, fights against fights against the idea of, well, we got to cut, we have to, we have to make sure that we're living we're doing everything we need to right now. And it seems that some people who live those lifestyles, listening to listening to some of them or reading books or watching movies uh, that they put together, um, did that to get out of the, to get out of the, like the, I've got to get this done. I've got to achieve. And, and a lot of those internal anxieties that they developed, they said, screw this. I'm, I'm jumping ship. I'm not going to live by this clock anymore. Maybe. Um, I don't think the answer is to hide from time. I don't think you can really hide from time. Um, I think if, you're, if your perception of what I said about time being the fire in which we burn it has a specifically materialistic bent, and you're thinking about productivity in the corporate materialistic sense, the commercial, commercial culture sense, if you're thinking about it in that way, then you're then we're talking past each other. You're not receiving mm -hmm. what I'm saying in the spirit in which it's intended. Um, I think everything that I said is super consistent with the, the type of um, experience that, that that person might have. Um, 
because what they're seeing is they only have so many days left on the planet. Do they really want to spend them chasing commercial success right. or consumerism or materialism? No, they want to connect with what they see as more spiritual and, and existential sort of metaphysical substance of, of life and reality. And the way that they're choosing to do that is divorcing themselves from modern consumer culture and the rat race of, of corporate life and all that stuff. Right? They're trying to break from a mode of life, not the mechanics of life itself, which necessarily always include time. And, and they, in fact, might feel fueled by the same sense of urgency that drives me because they might be saying, oh my God, what if I got hit by a car tomorrow and this was my life? This was the story of my life, trapped in corporate America, a slave to my middle management position, you know, house in the suburbs, whatever, trying to keep up with the Joneses, all that stuff. What if that was my life? And well, so I, I think crushingly depressing to them. Yeah, I know. I agree. I agree with you. I think it is fueled by the same idea of there's there's time. And it seems that 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 time would push some some people to an extreme of uh, and I'm not using the idea of extremism as a judgment of bad or good. But there, but on, on a continuum, there's the extreme of because I have limited time, I have to, I I want to do as much as I can. I want to, I've got to make plans. I've got to push those plans. I've got to check off the boxes every day to make sure I'm moving to those plans. What's my three month, my six month, my year, my five year? Achieve, achieve, achieve. Do, do, do. Because I've got limited amount of time. Versus the other extreme, the other side, which would be because I have limited amount of time, I'm going to invest fully in now. And I'm going to let tomorrow or the next moment take care of itself and go wherever I go, wherever life leads me. And it seems that both of those people can generate a level of happiness. One might talk about what, what is that the goal is happiness? I don't know. You tell me it. What do you think the goal is different? I do. Um, The goal isn't to be unhappy. Right. But, but happiness or unhappiness are transient emotional states. They come and go with circumstances. Our emotions are neurochemical reactions to circumstances in our life and to all of the back. Yeah. And all the, I don't think you believe that. that I think you, I think you actually believe people are deeper than their neurochemicals. I think you think think people are deeper than their, than their, their, their physicality. And I think that you think that people transcend all of that. So it can't just be neurochemicals. I, I, I well, happiness is and unhappiness is neurochemical. It is a neurochemical is it? reaction. Yeah, it is. Expre- I would say it's in- expressed in a neurochemical reaction, but where does it generate? By, I don't know that that's there's maybe a clear by idea. Happiness of that. you mean contentment. Maybe by happiness you mean contentment. I Why know, would you split that? Yeah, because because happiness is like, oh, I'm I'm happy. I'm up. I'm feeling good. I'm jovial. I'm in, you know I'm in a great mood, and it's a sort of. Uh, uh, what is it, Barbara Ehrenreich talked about in corporate America, this sort of smile or die approach. And I, I think um, that is like a, obsessing about whether or not you're happy and the, the pursuit of happiness at all times. I think that is incredibly destructive. I think that fuels a lot of uh, our commercial culture and consumerism, I, which I think is, is uh, bad, you know, like I, I judge that, but um I think contentment is deeper. Contentment is like reflected in what the Apostle Paul said, where he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith be content. 
that kind of contentment, where, whatever state you're in, you're centered, you're grounded, you can let circumstances come and go. You can let your neurochemical reactions to your circumstances come and go. You can let your emotions come and go, but you humans have the capacity to be deeper than that. Um, like in, there's a new movie coming out in October, Dune. It's an, it's like the third time they've d- done a film adaptation of Frank Herbert's um, all-time best-selling sci-fi classic. It's the best-selling sci-fi book of all time. And uh, it's a wonderful book. And in the book, one of the characters is made to put his hand in a pain box, a box of, of pain. <laughs> and it's basically his nerves are being stimulated by this box. And it's a test. And the person doing this to him has a poison needle at his neck and says, if you pull your hand out of the box, you will die. I'll, you know, you, you'll have this poison needle thrust into your neck and you'll die. And um, she leaves his hand in the box. And he leaves it in there longer than anybody else. And so she takes this as a sign that he's this sort of an evolved human, that he's he has learned to ignore pain and not to seek pleasure and avoid pain, which is the definition of hedonism. But he's a, he's learned to sacrifice for a greater good for, for his own life in this particular case. And I think that the people that we were talking about before, the person who feels um, sort of caught up in the rat race and they feel like this urgent sense of need to produce and this per- other person who feels this urgent sense of need to find themselves in the moment and get clarity and get centered and kind of separate themselves from a high productivity lifestyle and, and focus more on sort of existential things in the moment. I think both of those people are doing the right thing for them at, at the time. And the difference is purpose. There's the sense of urgency and the feeling of being consumed by the fire of time that drives both individuals. But the difference Do you think it's possible that is, both of those people can be, both of those extremes can exist in the same person? Absolutely. And we actually all experience those things? Yeah, probably not at the same time, but yes. And there have been times where I've felt the need to, like right now I'm in a, a productivity mode. Like this is the mode of my life in this moment because I have a very clear mission and purpose that I'm working towards. But I've also felt the need from time to time to dive within and get connected to um, myself and the world around me and to go to, I remember back in 2004, I had lost um, a relationship, a very meaningful relationship to me. Um, It went bad and it went bad real bad, (laughs) real fast. And I lost most of my friends at the time as a result of it as well. So like, it felt like my whole, I was in a state of loss and abandonment at the end of 2004. It was really bad. And I went out to um, California. I had a friend who was out there and I hadn't seen her in a while. Um, and we had been friends since we were like teenagers, you know. And so we were just kind of reconnecting. We decided to reconnect over New Year's. And I went out there and uh, I can remember going to Patrick's Point Park in Northern California, looking out over the Pacific. And it was like, I really found context. I really realized just from that moment of leaving behind everything east of the Mississippi, leaving my life behind for even if it was just 10 days or a week or however long I was out there, um, leaving all of that behind and living sort of, uh, she, she was kind of a hippie chick, hippie kid and lived in, a, it was almost, it was like an old um, logging headquarters building that had been converted into apartments with a bunch of people. It was very much like the whole hippie commune kind of thing. And so we were out there and um, living this essentialist kind of existence. And she was, and I, she said, why don't you come out and clear your head? And so I did. And um, taking that time 
and going out and specifically in that moment out in, in the park and in, in nature and looking out at the Pacific. For me, it was like, wow, I have really let all of my problems get so big, haven't I? And really, they're not. Like, I've been stupid. I sort of whipped myself a little bit thinking, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been stupid. I've let all of these things that really aren't that big get really, really big in my head. And when you are out there looking at the Pacific, especially for someone who's from Tennessee, right? Landlocked state, you know, we don't have oceans. Um, so it, not here. And so going out there and doing that really kind of, for me, put everything in perspective. It's like, you're not as big as you think you are. No, you need a little bit of humility and you need to calm down and realize that your problems aren't huge. You've got this. You can dive, dive back in. Um, and to getting that perspective allowed me to finish college and um, move on with my life, you know, from, from all the things that had been really, really dragging me down and, and weren't small things. I mean, I know that they were, but like, it was the loss of a four and a half year relationship and all my friends and, you know, being dissatisfied with a lot of other things in my life as well at the time. So it really was suffocating. It was suffocating me in my life and to go out and get a little bit of context like that made all the difference. And so I've been in that mode. I've been in that leave things behind mode, not to the point where I sold all my possessions, moved into a van and so on, but a similar experience on a much smaller scale. And I think I've done that a couple of times at various other points in my life, but just to kind of share that story so you can have a little more specific understanding of what I mean. Um, yeah, I definitely think those people can be the same person at different points in time. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, I, we talked about intentionality and purpose purpose you know living purposefully let's say it would seem to me that even when even when people are doing things that don't lead them to be the people that they want to be they are still doing those things intentionally and purposefully and it's and it's usually because there's some sort of undealt with issue yeah. that it's not a matter of thinking it's a matter of emotions and yeah we are, we're, we're emotional beings and that's how our buying decisions are made. You've seen it in the law. That's how people make decisions that are the, that anybody else who's not emotionally attached to would go, you're being crazy. You should rethink this. Right. But the, but because we are emotional beings, the emotions and, and to your point, like you, you lost, you had emotional time, you know, terrible emotional struggles, which then led to terrible thoughts. And then all of a sudden the thoughts spin, 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 spin. And the only way to get out of that is to have some sort of change in process or change in inputs. But the, but even staying in that, even staying in that thought process feeds something. It's like, it's purposeful and intentional. It's just not leading anywhere, anywhere good. It's not leading us to where we want to be. It's, it's just, it's uh but it's somehow there for safety. It's like, it's there for safety. It's for consideration. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty, I'm, I've lived a lot of my life in my head. And uh, I had a therapist once who, who I was, I was going to take a trip. My therapist says, I want you to just live in the moment. And I said, I know the words you're saying, and I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know what it feels like. And right. because what I, what I, what I came to recognize is that my ability to think is pretty high, pretty smart guy done a lot of stuff. A lot of people come, have come to me through the years and said, Jason, you know, help me think this through. And I've got, I got in this mode of if I could think things through, then I could be safe. And then, and so I amass information in kind of in an effort to, to build out, like, here's exactly what I, 
what I think. Here's exactly what I mean, because I want to create missteps, which has not ironically enabled me to create missteps. Like I still have made missteps, even though I'm a pretty smart guy. Right. And I, and I, and it, because there's always something there and I, where my missteps were, were because I hit all those emotions because I was so afraid of them because I didn't know what to do with them. You can't like, I mean, consider yourself a lawyer. I mean, make a document that handles emotions, like fig- figure that one out. Good luck. Yeah, Cause like it's so, it's all across the map. Big Bang Theory. How, how yeah. Sheldon and how Sheldon has this relationship agreement with the big bang theory. Like every time I watch that show, uh, my wife and I love it. And every time I watch that, I'm like, yes, all of that, have a contract, have a contract for your relationship. And you know what we do? Like we have prenuptial agreements. We have postnuptial agreements. People, the relationship contracts aren't just a thing on a sitcom. People do that. It's not a crazy thought yeah, because they deal, they deal with the feel... they deal with the stuff. They deal with the stuff, but the undealt with stuff is stuff that can't be it. It cannot be legislated. It's felt. It's it's like the yeah. uh, um. It's it's Sometimes like a kid. You can't like a kid who you can't make flowers. space for the feeling. Well, sure. You the, can't, the, the, so, sometimes the, you can't make space for the feeling because you're so trapped by all the stuff. But if you can agree about the 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 stuff things, if you will, the, the things that can be legislated or things that can be dealt with in an agreement, the behavioral parameters, if you can deal with some of that, then it can give you space to feel safe enough to confront your emotions head on and think and, and develop and, you know, think and feel together rather than thinking for sure. separately. For sure. I what mean, about a kid a, a flower? Are... You started to say something about a kid and a flower. Well, I mean, think about, think about, think about a kid who takes a, takes a flower, a flower that's, uh, you know, growing, growing next door, picks the flower, takes it to their parent, you know, takes it to mom and says, Hey mom, I picked you a flower. Well, the kid's simultaneously a criminal because they picked somebody else's flower. Yeah. The kid thinks they did a fantastic job because yeah. they were not thinking about the stuff. They were not thinking about the flower. They were thinking about mom and how they wanted to express love in it, in, in something that you like, how does mom know that the kid's expressing love? How does, how does the kid, how do, why isn't the kid, you know, drug off? And have to you know be have to at least compensate, you know the person next door for that. It seems that at, we as children experience these things, and we're like, oh, isn't that sweet? And then the scale of it just gets bigger when we're adults, when we're quote unquote adults. Well, we just happen to be dealing Honestly. with more stuff. But yet somewhere in the middle of us are these unlegislatable things that are just like that makes yeah. no damn sense. And, but here's what I intend. Like here's what I intend. And if we live in in that in that feeling space a bit. You know, where, how, what's what's all that kind of stuff sit with you in this idea of they'll think thinking all this stuff through? I think it's uh, man. There's just so many things that I want to say about thinking and feeling. Um, I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, and I think that they're both better when they're done together. I think talking about people as emotional people and fr- framing them as emotional people, I think is not it's not wrong because there we do have an emotional component. But we're not purely emotional beings, thank God. And um, we don't purely make decisions based on emotion or none of us would continue to exist. We, humanity could not survive a world like that. Um, could not. You can point those people out pretty quickly. I mean, there's... there's you totally right? can. Folks, folks yeah, who actually totally cannot can. experience emotion, they're very interesting people to to interview and and hear from. I mean, it's or, yeah. or folks who folks who's you know they've they've severed the connection between the lobes of the brains. There's there's we do have these extremes in our minds that somehow, like you say, we're not purely one or the other. 
we need to learn to work work them through. Like a child yeah. needs to learn to regulate emotion. I have this emotional experience and then I have to apply thinking to it. And But applying thinking without emotion is like, oh my gosh, like I, I you're bad at parties for sure. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, and that's... we're really super interesting at, at lectures and symposiums. Um, right, exactly. Paul Bloom has written a book like, he's written, Paul Bloom's written a book called The uh, Case, well, it's, the title is Against Empathy. The case for rational okay. compassion and mm. um he makes a case for rational compassion which is absolutely compelling it's one of the best books that's been written in the last maybe 100 years and okay. really 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 needs a lot more props than it gets um but he talks about how empathy is the source of a lot of our problems in our society and life and how using empathy to uh, drive public policy is particularly dangerous and he makes he makes the case. I won't repeat all his arguments from the book, but I strongly recommend everybody go read it. Um, and basically, what he's saying in, in a nutshell is that empathy on its own isn't bad, but empathy as a motivation is terrible because it's pure, pretty much purely emotional. And what we really need is the compassion that we normally associate with empathy. We definitely need that. That's purely good. But we need it constrained by reason, and we really need to think about the long-term good of others and the long-term good that we can do in the world. And we need to think think long-term, and yes, pay attention to some short-term ameliorative effects for human su uh, um, human suffering, yes, but really have prioritize the long-term long over the short-term and be compassionate um, and have that compassion restrained by reason. So he's bringing feeling and thinking together to get the best of both worlds. And I strongly support that. I think that human life and, and human modes of behavior are optimal whenever we are using system two marginally more in our brain, wherever we can, we can where we're being analytical, logical, reasonable, you know, thoughtful, intentional, and kind of slowing down a little bit to do that. Um, and we are creating space for system one to play a little bit, uh, to have to have better interactions, because it's system two that creates the best parameters for life, and it's system one that lives within those parameters best. And so, I think if we're feeding both parts of our brain, both modes of thinking in our brain, we can simultaneously avoid critical thinking traps, you know, sort of heuristics and cognitive biases, as well as um, you know. What? I'm alone. Hey, there you are. You're back. I'm I'm back. Sorry about that. My internet, for yeah. whatever reason, cut out. Came right back. Yeah. No, I was just saying that I think if we if we use system two in our brain to create the right parameters for life, no. and sort of make the big the big decisions, um, it creates space for system one to play and and to get the most emotional enjoyment out of life and to kind of focus on the little things and and get positive positivity out of that. Um, I yeah. think where we end up miserable is where we, we don't use critical thinking um, to structure our lives and we just sort of fly by the seat of our pants and act in a very reactionary way, you know, like if we're just reacting I, to things all the time. And that's the person you're describing maybe as the emotional person so that we can all, we can pick out all the super emotional people because they're just reacting to everything that comes by. I, I, I view it a lot like parenting. So um, I've now got three kids through the gate. Uh, and sometimes 
as much as I don't like to see my kids suffer, sometimes suffering is necessary to bring about certain, you know, certain uh, characteristics that, you know, I perhaps wanted to see, you know, in my, in my kids as they developed. Um, and then at some point in time, I passed the torch and I had the conversation with my sons at one, at one point, passed the torch to them and said, Hey, listen, you're old enough now that the decisions that you make are either going to lead you to the person that you feel like you want to be, or they're going to lead you away from that person. So, um, you know, I've, I've put a framework in place as much as I can, and now it's up to you to, to make those decisions. And, and, and you can do whatever you want to do, be the person that you want to be. It's totally fine with me. Um, and I might disagree with you and I might tell you about it, but at ultimately I love you and, 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 you know, make your decisions and, and run with them. And if you ever, if you ever need help or advice or whatever, ask me, I'll have happy to happy to give that to you. But the, to your, to your point about empathy, I can empathize with my kids. I've been a kid before. I know sometimes things are difficult and yet the, the feeling of it, taking that together, you know, hold, holding that and going, yeah, this really sucks. It sucks for me too. So I don't like to see this stuff happen. And then putting the thinking on it and say, okay, well, how, how are we going to deal with this in this moment? Because uh, in, the emotions will pass for sure. They're an indicator that something is, something is awry or, or that something is not awry. That's like, this is an indicator. It's great. We're having a great time. But how do we get to that point? And it's, it's I, I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think we are being able to being able to live with this holistic idea of who we are as people and then go off and create the life we want to create. We create that in this moment because we're not guaranteed the next moment at all. And it doesn't mean that right. we don't create, you know, we don't create a plan for the next moment, but hold loosely to that deal with what you have right now. And I do believe that there is a, there is a, some magical principle about the universe that, that as we, as we do a good job with the thing we have in, in front of us, that the next thing is given to us and we grow into that sometimes intentionally, like you say, you know, we could, we, I think we have a great capacity to create things around us. We got coffee with humans. We didn't have this conversation yet, but coffee with humans was created because I think people have three capacities that nothing else has. One is to name our present reality and name a future. We'd like nothing else has that capacity. It just sort of exists. Num number two is we have the ability to create that future. And number three is we have the ability to get rid of or destroy things that no longer serve us. And of all of creation, let's call it, people are the only ones who get the responsibility authority in those three areas. Everything else just sort of exists. And if, and if it's, if it's, uh, if it's space changes, it ceases to exist. It doesn't go about changing it. We, we have this responsibility and authority and we do that first for ourselves. And then as we get to go, as we get to join together, perhaps in a podcast like this, then we get to do that in our, you know, we expand the scope, expand the influence and we make, we can make our, our individual spaces, our areas of influence better if we choose to. And they, and we can make them, we can make them bad if we choose to, we have that capacity. And I think that's, that's kind of at the root of it. Do you want to be better? Do you want to? Do you want to do a good yeah. job, whatever that is? And then if you don't leave, and if you're not doing a good job, accept the input from somebody else, because if you want different outcomes, you need different process, or you need different input. And, and we only you did, change those. You got, right? Absolutely. We only change our processes or our input with outside influence. 
We don't change them from inside. We we got the same process, right. and I've and I've been where yeah, you know, areas like you've described where it's just like spinning around my head, and super anxious, and super capable, and 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 the only way out is different process or different inputs. Even when, even when I know, like I'm not not a dummy. I know I knew, I knew I was in that loop, right? Yeah. And then it was like, and then when somebody you know who who uh comes to me and says hey you know i'd like you to live in the moment and i went and i literally went i don't know how, what that feels like as a 40 40 something year old man i don't know what that feels like i know what it sounds like and i think i might know how to create it but i don't actually know what it means to just sit in it <laughs> right yeah, for me, because i didn't have a framework before. for thinking it through yeah for me the answer has been dialing down the intensity a little bit and mm. taking more meaningful pauses throughout the day, more time with my son and more time thinking about, um, okay, look, you're, yes, you're on a mission and yes, it's very important. And yes, you need to be productive now and you need to be in this productivity cycle and you only have so much time, but if you burn out before you get there, you also won't be able to complete your, your mission. You won't be able to complete your objective. So you have to take some time along the way for, for self-care and dial down the intensity a little bit. For me, I think the only way out of the current cycle that I'm in is through. The only way out is through. Giving up really isn't an option. Um, and a lot of the things that create urgency and, and indeed anxiety for me are there for a good reason. They're part of the purpose. They're part of the plan. And it's, it's all okay. But I just need to have the mental discipline, the self-discipline to not let it carry me away. It's like uh, whitewater rafting, right? You know, you, you, you got to stay in control um, or you're going to flip over and get your head smashed open on a rock. So I just got to know where the rocks are, know where the rapids are, stay in control and um, take time for the occasional break and then get back in the rapids. So yeah. for, for me, I like it's that. cool. I like that perspective. I, yeah. I'm not too like I'm I'm finding balance even within um what might seem for some people to be like a kind of chaos, but it's controlled chaos and I'm finding I'm finding my way within it. Um there was a thing that you had said that made me think, oh, what was I gonna say? Ah, doesn't matter. If I can't remember it, it's not important to to share. So uh, maybe it'll I like what you say about rapids. The the it going going down rapids in a kayak or in a tube or something like that is is it does it is like controlled chaos and one of the principles is to use the use the momentum of whatever you're in to your advantage don't fight it don't fight the current don't don't try and fight the wave go with it because it's impossible to yeah. fight the wave at the at the best case scenario you're going to be you're going to make it through and you're going to be completely exhausted whereas if you just roll if you just roll with it you you can you feel the, you begin to feel how it's how it's running down and it might be unexpected in how you're going to get mm -hmm. through it <laughs> right but you use yeah. that momentum and that's a that's a process of like you talk about this thinking and feeling there's um there's a there's a saying that the what what is what is the saying something like um oh shoot i cannot believe this it's escaped my mind um my memory failure experience is Experience is the best teacher. Yeah, experience right? is the best. That's yeah, right, sure. and and a lot of people believe that right off right off the gate. But it's totally not true. There's yeah. all sorts of people who yeah. are experienced and have not learned a thing, 
it's evaluated experience is the best teacher. And so I think one of the processes, I mean, for me at least, is to evaluate, but not over-evaluate. Evaluate to yeah. have learned hey. some, you know, it, but but if I, if I if if there's nothing clear to it, let it go. The experience has changed me because I intend to evaluate it. Um, and everything, you know, everything, I, I do trust that everything leads to a point. It all does somehow work out if we, well, if we in this, this moment, you, know, you use it. Yeah. So I, I think we have some lag, some lag on the connection. So I, I, I will accept responsibility. It's probably my connection. I apologize for that. It might be my VPN, but um, I was just going to say there is a fine line between panic and exhilaration. Mm. And usually, you know, the, the difference is I, I understand the pattern that I'm in. Like it's a, if you're, if you're falling out of a plane, it's probably going to be terrifying. If you're falling out of a plane with a parachute, <laughs> doing it on purpose, it's a completely different experience. Now, if you're falling out of a plane with a parachute for the first time, it's probably going to be a mixture of both, right? Your, your brain is telling you, this is not okay. You might turn around and look up and the plane is getting very rapidly, very small, you know, <laughs> and you think yeah. the ground is so big and it's coming right at me. And you might think, okay, this is a reason for me to panic. Um, or at least parts of your brain will be telling you that. The other parts of your brain will be saying, it's cool. You've got this. You, you've got the altimeter. You know, pull the cord at the appropriate time. Everything's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. Um, if you do the right thing at the right time and you have a general sense of, of where you are and you kind of have pers the right perspective, you can get through just about anything, whether it's jumping out of a plane or going down, you know, category four rapids, whatever. Um, you, luck plays a huge role in our lives, but luck really is just the intersection of preparation and opportunity. And we can cultivate both of those things. So I think the more we cultivate, you know, good opportunities in front of us and preparedness for them when they appear, um, the luckier we'll get. And the, and the more experiences that we have that as you say, we evaluate carefully and thoughtfully. It's not just any evaluation that we'll do, but it's really thoughtful, deliberate, logical evaluation of those those experiences. The more we do that, I think the more peace we'll find in our lives. And peace is not an emotional state. You know, it's it's a state of being. It's a state of thinking. It's a state of mind that you can have, even in moments of happiness or depression, exhilaration or stagnation whatever, whatever extremes you may be feeling at the moment, you can still have peace. All right. Well, on that note, our time with Coffee of Humans has to come to an end. We're, we're over our time only because we're in such a, I think a, such a great conversation and I'm learning a lot and, well, and appreciate you. your wisdom. Um, your, people Same can here. get a contact with you of profitfromlegal.com. I know you're doing, I know that again, we talked just very briefly about the things you should do and to help small business owners uh, navigate, navigate probably better the legal, uh, the legal system. And there are the things they should or shouldn't be doing by, by kind of turning the current, turning the relationship on its head, um, and becoming a, mm -hmm. an advocate, uh, more than a reactionary, uh, you know, a reactionary process to go through. So cool stuff you're doing with that. Uh, so get, yeah, to our viewers and listeners, get in contact with Noel at profitfromlegal.com. Uh, and, Coffee with Humans, just to recap, Coffee with Humans is candid live conversations between strangers who become friends, making the world a better place. You can catch us frequently on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, LinkedIn, a bunch of other places. 
Uh, and Noel, you've got a podcast too. Can they, and they can get that at profitfromlegal.com? Uh, yeah, there are links to the podcast there, or you can just um, find us on Apple Podcast. It's the Profit From Legal podcast. So just put it in your search. There we go. Just put Profit From Legal in the search, and that's how you'll find me. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on uh, Coffee with Humans. We'll catch you next time. One of the things I love about Coffee with Humans are the raw conversations I get to have meeting new people just like you. If you or someone you know should be on Coffee with Humans, go to coffeewithhumans.com. Remember, the only rule is no sales calls.